0: if you have a Bible, you could be turning to uh, the letter 1 Timothy in the New Testament, which obviously we've been spending a little bit of time in when I've been preaching. We're going to continue in chapter 2, and in just a moment I'll read a few verses from verse 8. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, that's where, we, that's where I'll be starting. Obviously if you don't have a Bible with you, in paper form or in electronic form. And don't worry, because you can look uh, on the screen and I'm sure you can follow uh, the references that we look at from the Bible up there. So, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Those are the verses that we're going to be spending some time looking at today. In fact, we're going to focus specifically on verse 9 and 10, because we looked at verse 8 uh, last time, the particular instructions to, uh, to men. Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy has focused specifically on prayer, on God's people, the dwelling place of God, the household of God, the church itself, Uh, the focus has been upon that community of people being a people who pray and Paul has dealt with that generally, setting out a, a vision with faith for all that we're to pray about and all those we're to pray for. And he starts to deal with some specifics. And we saw that last time in verse 8, speaking to, uh, to men, encouraging them to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And then we come to verse 9 and 10. And quite frankly, at this point, we might think, what a strange instruction. Uh, is Paul only interested in outward behaviour, we might ask ourselves, is Paul just wanting to strictly police the church's dress code? What's that all about? You know, you may have had the experience uh, in school, maybe even school at the moment you have to wear a very particular school uniform, or for those of you who went to school a little while ago, maybe you could remember a uniform that you had to wear? A dress code that existed within the school. I wonder if there's anybody here who knows they would have got detention just on the basis of whether their skirt came above the knee as opposed to below the knee. I don't know so much about that, but I've heard that that's sometimes um, (laughs) been the case. Or did you hear about the the school recently, uh, earlier on in the summer this year, in Exeter, where all the boys, well not all the boys, but lots of the boys in this particular academy... Protested about the school uniform policy. They'd raised a legitimate issue uh, with the headmaster. Um, on a really, really hot day, why do we have to wear trousers? Can't we wear shorts? Somehow, for some reason, that, shorts for boys were not allowed in the school's dress code. Uh, so on a very hot day, they had the brainwave of all wearing... Uh, the girls' skirts that they were allowed to wear, the, the particular tartan-designed skirts. And there's photos, you can check that out on, on Google later. It's quite a, an, an impressive, quite a, uh, a good protest because all of us looking at that or hearing about it honestly ask the question, why stop them wearing shorts? What's the big deal? Why is it so strict? Can't some allowance be made when it's hot weather? Uh, so well done, them. Is this the kind of spiritual equivalent? No gold, no pearls, no expensive clothes, no braids. Is it just a slightly random hard line on the church's dress code? I mean, can you imagine if our welcome team uh, greeted us as we came in the building? Hi, it is fantastic to see you. Um, really like those earrings. But let's just be clear. Are they silver, or are they white gold? I promise you, I promise you they're silver, because for some reason that would be like horrific. Um, or that, that dress, it, it really suits you. Um, hmm, hang on a minute. Is it a designer label? I got it in the sale. I promise. I only shop in Age UK. Honest. Um, Madam, could you please step through uh, the security? Beep, 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 beep. Set off the alarm. Step aside, please. That's perfectly fine. Um, But you have warm clothing this morning that we regard as inappropriate, so it's fine because to be welcoming, uh, we have some other clothes that you could wear. And you, I'm sure uh, any size will do. It's one size fits all. And uh, just to avoid uh, you know, unhelpful comparisons, we know how it can be sometimes, it's all the same colour. We've gone for prison grey. Okay. So there you are. We've made an allowance for every situation, thinking it through carefully. If that were the case, if that were the way to see these verses, it would sound, it would be, very traditional out of touch legalistic just quite frankly strange we want the world to see what true joy looks like when they meet the church the church of the living god but we're all wearing gray and whispering to the new recruits it's the uniform around here you don't worry you'll get used to it you know is that heaven on earth or is that prison security um, it, it's not a very winsome picture, is it, of the people of God? So, obviously, that's not the best way to understand these verses, but what are their relevance, therefore, and how does it connect to prayer? And, quite frankly, then, how do these verses apply today? And in order to uh, get to that, I just need to introduce a friend of mine. Uh, well, it's actually a toy that belongs to my daughter, but she's very kindly uh, lent me a little little toy bird. For the purpose of today, she has the name uh, Polly. And she is pink, uh, but most canaries are yellow. And uh, did you know, up until about 30 years ago, if people were mining, going down into mining tunnels and so on, to excavate precious raw materials, maybe coal, maybe tin, maybe something else, did you know that they used to take a uh, canary down with them uh, in, a, in a small cage? Uh, and there was a reason for that. The reason was, let me see if I can balance Polly here, just about. Uh, the reason was that canaries are particularly sensitive to toxic gases that we can't Detect. So, for example, uh, carbon monoxide. We can't taste it, we can't smell it, and to our eyes it has no colour. But the problem with carbon monoxide is if we're breathing it in, it won't take long before we fall asleep forever. So, if the miners down in a mine shaft and kind of making progress, if they disturbed some pockets. ...of toxic gas, they needed a way of detecting it... ...because that's a big problem. They would have to halt what they were doing... ...kind of take a step back and work out a way of making that area safe... ...before they could proceed. And that's where uh, the canaries came in... ...because they would start to behave strangely... um, ...if they could detect carbon monoxide. And that might mean that there were some obvious signs of distress or it might be that they stopped making any noise. Altogether, the miners realised now it's time to exit this tunnel, we'll make it safe, and we'll go back in with a new canary. So you can imagine, the, the, the bond was very uh, close, I'm sure, between miners and their uh, canaries. Here's the point. The canary is not the problem. The canary is an indication that there is a problem, a bigger Problem, And when Paul visited the church in Ephesus, there were a few canaries, there were a few indications. There's a problem here. It might be a really big problem. And the big problem was that the church at large had actually drifted away from what Paul describes as the glorious gospel of the blessed God. They're no longer focus on the gospel they're no longer living in grace instead there are many others in the church who want to be we're told in chapter one uh, who want to be teachers of the law we know from paul he's just modeling modeling grace and you can see that in chapter one verse 12 through to 17 he's living in grace he's living in the light of the glorious gospel and therefore what flows out from within him is joy and worship and prayer, and openness. He doesn't hide who he was. He's free to acknowledge his past, but he's free because he's enjoying the grace of God. When he comes into the church, he realises the church is no longer uh, living in grace. That's where the, the canary comes in. If I just flick a switch here. Did you hear that? Oh. Hallelujah! We're living in grace! Hallelujah! We're living in grace! Yay! Woo! But sometimes uh, the canary might be saying, I smell trouble! I smell trouble! Okay. I smell trouble. Yeah, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> so, what do I mean? Well... Paul came into the church, I don't know what to do with Polly, you can just sit there for a bit. Paul came into the church and perhaps spent time with the church, realised, hang on a minute, church is prayer life. They've gone, they've gone oddly quiet. Something's not quite right when prayer has gone a bit passive. Or maybe it's something else. We looked last time, didn't we, at uh, this instruction to men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. You see, when people miss the grace of God, what happens is we can become very good at bearing a grudge, falling out with one another, not resolving those differences, and then just tiptoeing around each other or, or maybe other people just learn, they pick it up in the atmosphere. Um, these two people, they don't get on. There's, there's anger or disputing. Perhaps that was a somehow a feature of their prayer as well. It's kind of become a bit competitive, it's become a bit of an argument, there's lots of controversy, things about which people strongly disagree and are antagonised with each other. Well, I think Paul is sensing all of that, he's aware of these things, and he's quickly realising there's a big, a big problem. And, and when people miss the grace of God, when we miss the grace of God, here's another way in which we can drift there becomes an unhelpful focus on appearances. In other words, the, whenever we see the teachers of the law, certainly in the New Testament, we see they have a priority to kind of cover up deeper problems of sin or unbelief, attitudes in their heart that are ugly. The teachers of the law just want to cover those up rather than deal with them. For them, the priority is focusing on looking good on the outside, the outer appearance. That's what's really important. That's where teachers of the law focus. Let me show you uh, from the scripture one example of Jesus addressing these issues. In, In Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 25, Jesus says, and clearly he's not just speaking to he's not speaking to women at this point, he's speaking to men. It's right across the board for all of us, this potential for drifting away from the Gospel. He writes there, Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also... Be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus is addressing with them this uh, unhelpful focus on just keeping the outside respectable, clean, and beautiful, but never dealing with what 's on the inside. And this is what they 're teaching. So this is the pressure uh, that other people uh, who listen are, are under there 's a, a way of life, a religious way of life where I have to make sure i 've cleaned up the outside uh, hidden what's really going on uh, on the inside, in my inner self, I just need to focus on looking respectable, looking the part. And that's, that's a religious way of life. I think in our day and age, it's also just a normal way of life. We are in a society which is painfully preoccupied with appearances, with what we look like. That's how... Uh, popularity and self-worth and identity are achieved we've got to brush up we have to look impressive and it never deals with what's really going on on the inside and perhaps there's no expectation that anything on the inside will actually ever get dealt with I can remember uh, a fairly uh, trivial example of seeing this as Rachel and I were, were out with some friends one evening celebrating and part of a bigger group we didn't know everybody there and uh, obviously, it was just the place to be and a fantastic time. Uh, but I can remember seeing a young woman, uh, as part of this group, sat down. Quite honestly, she looked bored out of her skull. Uh, it, to her, it doesn't, didn't look like the place to be at all. I think she was just kind of marking time until it was okay to go, or we'll hopefully move on, on to something a little bit more interesting. But then something interesting happened. Someone, a friend of hers got out the mobile phone to take a selfie, gathered this friend to them in order to kind of recall, record the moment. In that moment, her face changed completely. Suddenly, she lit up. And it's, it's quite a chat. I don't know, I find selfies a bit challenging. Um, I haven't had that much practice. Obviously, you've got to hold the phone slightly above. You can't take one beneath, can you? Because that's like double chin, territory right there that's not going to look good so you've got to go above you've got to kind of catch yourself in the picture obviously as well as the people you're with and kind of get enough of the background for people to realize it was ultimately the best place to be ever on Saturday night, my problem is the kind of photo tends to start at my eye line, and then it just gets a shiny head in the flash. Everything's a bit obscured, and it doesn't quite work. Anyway, she had it nailed. She knew exactly what to do. She had the angle of her head just right. She had the slightly demure pouty smile going on as well. So she looked amazing. Suddenly, she was transformed, and you could imagine if you saw the photo on Facebook later, think, "Oh, if only I'd been there." If only I was as cool as her. But quite frankly, as soon as the selfie moment has gone, she's sullen she's again. She's not actually happy, not actually having a good time, but thank goodness there's a selfie to give the other impression. And that can be what it's like for us, uh, can't it? Where there's a pressure to look amazing, there's a pressure to demonstrate you are having the best time Ever and that other people should envy you and, uh, or maybe from your perspective you might look on Facebook or other social media and think, oh, it looks like everyone else is having a fantastic time and I'm not. Uh, these are some of the pressures that we can, uh, can be exposed to in the selfie generation. I think what Paul is seeing in the church in Ephesus at this point is an ugly attitude where they become preoccupied, very focused on their image, on their appearance, and somehow or another, like a canary starting to behave strangely, Paul can see there's a bigger issue behind it. There's something that needs addressing. At that point, the church can't just plough on. Let's make progress. Let's advance the kingdom. No, you've you've got to kind of take stock, safeguard the church. And teach to try and get to the big issue. It's not like having a go at at the people. It's not having a go at the canary. It's trying to get to the the real issue that's going on. So perhaps there in Ephesus, there are people very literally dressing to impress. And it's become competitive. It's about outdoing other people. It's about being better than other people. It's about being more prominent, and having better profile than other people have. And so braided hair, gold pearls or expensive hair, were the ways in which that was done at the time. Trying to elevate oneself to become one of the beautiful people um, and that having, yeah, just this competitive edge. And it may even have a a seductive edge to it as well because dress is being used to communicate, look at me, aren't I special? And so you've got members of the opposite sex having their head turned in perhaps a way that isn't helpful. Now, maybe that's starting to connect with the church's prayer life. Maybe even they're coming to the moment of prayer, but it's become a fashion parade uh, rather than a moment to enjoy God together and bring the needs of the whole world before him. So Paul has a big concern. He sees a church that's drifting into the ways of the world... And in the world, the message is, first of all, you put in a hard graft to achieve a standard of beauty according to your culture. That's your step, that's your challenge. Then, secondly, and after that, you can receive acceptance and worth and value as one of the beautiful people. Do you see what I mean? You become beautiful first and then receive acceptance. That's the way of... The world, and that's why Paul is addressing it here. So, in the time that remains, before we worship again, let's consider four steps to real beauty, four steps to biblical beauty. And it is, you'll be glad to know, entirely the other way around. What do I mean? Well, step one. The most important step, and definitely the first step, is this. Receive acceptance from the amazing grace of God. We don't have to endure a punishing regime in order to kind of receive special status. Rather, as a free gift, we receive from God Himself a completely new identity, total acceptance and love, and eternal forgiveness for our sin. That's the message in Christ. And when you're reading in in Ephesians chapter 1, this is what we're told. "Praise, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world uh, to be holy and pleasing to him. I'm not even sure I'm getting the verses right, but I, that's, you can check later Ephesians 1 verse 3 and 4 and onwards. In other words, through Jesus, through the gospel, we receive acceptance. We are adopted into God's family. And do you know what that means? It means that Jesus, as your brother, is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. I have four sisters. Well, I have two sisters and two sisters-in-law. It doesn't make sense to ask me the question, is your sister beautiful? It doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, dude, she's my sister. Of course she's beautiful. Um, And there's to be that kind of vibe in the church, that kind of attitude too. Why? Because we've received received acceptance uh, from him. Therefore, none of us are having to struggle to be noticed. He is smiling on us. We have his attention and he loves us. We're not having to pay excessive amounts of money to try to keep up with every trend and i'm not having to worry about who i'm seen with will that reflect well on me and my image you know a whole lot of worries can come in if we th- if we miss out on the grace of god if we don't receive acceptance from him and we're not refreshed in remembering his gospel so the first step to real beauty is that from god we receive acceptance from his grace, from his love. When were we loved? Well, from before the world began. And secondly then, we believe in biblical beauty. We have our minds transformed to believe what the Bible says about beauty, and biblically, beauty is real, but again, it works works the other way around. It's not a case of cleaning up the outside and just covering up blemishes to achieve acceptance. We've already seen that. Beauty doesn't start on the outside. Biblically, beauty starts on the inside. When someone has received this glorious acceptance in God, when someone's received amazing grace from Jesus, it does have a transforming effect right in the heart, but actually from the inside it then starts to kind of permeate through and it's reflected on the outside as well. well. What do I mean? Well practically when someone receives God's grace and knows by faith they're accepted by God, suddenly the fear and the striving that's been in the heart is released. All that weight Has gone, and then physically, there can, of course, therefore, be a change of posture where people might want to kind of curl up and hide away. Actually, they are starting to change in their appearance because, right on the inside, they've received God's grace. Maybe now it's like the gospel hasn't affected their bone structure, but perhaps now on. In the grace of God, different muscles are being exercised and literally someone goes from looking uh, uh, downcast, now that they've met God, uh, their face is genuinely different. It's lit up. Sometimes you can see that. When someone responds to the Gospel, their face changes. Well, it does. The Gospel doesn't change how tall we are or how broad we are or our bone structure, or our, our basic features. It doesn't change that, but it does change us on the inside, and that starts to, starts to shine through. Let me give you one example from the Bible of somebody who was beautiful, and then we'll read in the New Testament as to why that was the case. And that's Sarai, or Sarah as she became to be known. If you read about Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, you'll see in a few places that she is described as beautiful. That in itself is quite remarkable, because at this point she is, forgive me, 70 or 80 or 90 years old, but she's recognised by other people as being beautiful. Why is that the case? We don't know her physique, but what we do know is what Peter says. In 1 Peter, and chapter 3, and reading from verse 3, we get an insight again into biblical beauty. And Peter writes this, he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothing, very similar list to what Paul has said. So perhaps just culturally at the day, that's how people try to make themselves uh, impressive to look at. Peter writes here, Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Can you see biblical beauty again? It's actually starting on the inside, and then from there, it's starting to shine out. It's starting to radiate out. So we know from Genesis, Sarah was beautiful. Here's the explanation. Like other uh, women of old, she cultivated her relationship with God, and she put her hope in God she trusted him she trusted God through some fairly challenging scenarios but she cultivated what Peter calls here a quiet uh, and gentle gentle and quiet spirit I don't think that means that she wasn't very talkative and was just demure in that sense we don't know precisely her personality or her appearance but what we know is that on the inside she was at peace in trusting God to be in control of her life. She walked with God, she spent time with him, she brought challenges to him, and she learnt to trust in him. And I believe that's where her beauty came from. I believe that's why when she was 90, she was regarded as a very beautiful person, because all through the years, she's made it her practice. You know, in end of Proverbs, in, in chapter 31 of Proverbs, it says something on the lines of, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears God is to be praised. She's, in other words, she's to be celebrated. Yeah? In the world's way of thinking, be- be- beauty fades. We'll, we change. Uh, every decade something changes. But through that, There's a real beauty that shines out. I wonder if you'd recognise that in other people. I think that's sometimes how it works. Sometimes you can just see somebody is radiant. And it's not per se to do with their bone structure, their height or their their, uh, kind of broad shoulders or whatever. Uh, it's, It's to do with just something of God. It's a mysterious quality. Beauty is shining through. Sarah was not wrestling with discontent in her heart worry had been lifted from her shoulders I'm not saying she never had any challenge but she knew I'm a daughter of God I'm a child of God and he values me and he leads me my identity is in him and I can trust him completely that attitude made her beautiful and that's the same today as well I think this is very important for all of us grasp and have our minds renewed on. But travel the world. If you have the opportunity to travel the world, can you find a man or a woman who is not made in the image of God? I don't think so. I think there's huge variety and God regards all of that variety uh, in height and skin tone and bone structure, regards All of us and every type as beautiful, as made in his image. And so that's what should be reflected in the attitude of people in a church. And I think these issues relate to both men and women. I think sometimes men can struggle about their body image as well as women. But men, I just want to make an additional point here. It's important for your minds to be renewed in this regard as well, for an additional reason. Look, we've we've heard news recently, allegations being made to a very about a very powerful and influential Hollywood producer or film mogul called Harvey Weinstein, and his unpleasant controlling and predatory behavior uh, towards women, looking to manipulate them for his own satisfaction. And it kind of struck me and Rachel that, of course, there's lots now, lots of women, lots lots of famous actresses and others kind of blowing the whistle and saying how abhorrent that is. And we're not quite sure how many men are saying the same thing. Or are there just lots of men in culture saying, well... He didn't quite get away with it, did he? Whoops. Or, or sh- there should be men coming to say, that's abhorrent. That's not God's design. That's not how it should be. And in a community of God, there should be that attitude or that atmosphere of just safety. We're men and women together. You know, in the same way that it's just obvious to me to say, um, my sisters are beautiful. Obviously, I'm not praying on them. Uh, that should be the same thing in the family of God, in the household of God, that we're showing the world there's a different way. Again, there's, there's harmony, there's good relationship, there's protection. It's some while ago that we said to somebody, you're not welcome to come to this church until you repent. Why did we say that? Because he was making lots and lots of women uncomfortable. It's important. And I think we, as men, need to seize hold of that and make sure that our attitudes are being uh, renewed. Otherwise, if we're just holding the world's attitudes on beauty, then we, we might try and hide those attitudes, but they will leak out. And they'll affect the community. So what's the message of the Gospel? It deals with the heart. If we're missing the grace of God, we'll start to adopt the world's ways. Let's make sure, therefore, that we come to God. We come to Him. We receive that grace. We grow in it as well. We can consider too that Jesus taught on worry in Matthew chapter 6. He said, do not worry about your body. Do not worry about your clothing, about what you wear. See how God clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? How much more is, is God going to look after you? And I think that can move us on to our third step That when we are released from that inner turmoil, that self-conscious worry, what do I look like, what do other people think of me, and so on. When we're released from that, by the grace of God, it actually frees us up to use our energy more fruitfully to serve him. You know, we're no longer having to worry or Make sure that we're getting people's attention. We're not trying to carefully manage who we're seen with. And therefore we're free to serve God. This is what Paul is, is saying. Don't be concerned by uh, adorning yourselves with braided hair, gold, pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. And again, that's how real beauty shines, shines out. A people who are eager to serve God. And what does Jesus say when he's teaching on worry? Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What did Jesus say about cleaning the cup? He said, clean the inside of the cup and the outside of the cup will then be clean. He's not saying clean the inside of the cup and then clean the outside of the cup. He's saying something mysterious happens. You clean the inside of the cup, you'll find that the outside is clean. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and he will add to you. You may not even recognize it, but there'll be other people thinking there's just something attractive. There's just something mysteriously beautiful because there's somebody here who's not churned up with this self-conscious worry. They've been released from that. They've received the acceptance of God and now they're just enjoying that grace and serving him. Fourth and uh, final step is this. Choose clothes wisely. That's not our starting point. Our starting point was receive God's acceptance. But now we've worked through those other steps. It's appropriate to say, choose clothes wisely. It's okay for us to consider styles of clothing and colours that suit us better than not. Sometimes, amongst a community of believers, if we've drifted away from grace, we're kind of drifting back under law, another ugly attitude can develop, which is kind of a poverty-mindedness, where we may say of ourselves, oh no, I mustn't have anything nice. I, I mustn't ap- even appear to be giving my own personal appearance any effort whatsoever. And so therefore I will wear prison grey and my clothes may fit me well or they may not fit me well. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of poverty, poverty mindedness that can come in where it says it, it, we're not allowed to have anything nice that suits us at all. Well, that's clearly missing the point. That attitude still comes out from a worry about what will other people think. Will people think that I care too much about my appearance? Will people see me wearing gold earrings and think that's wrong and, uh, and I've got my priorities all wrong? So can you see how even that attitude comes from a, a worried, fearful mindset that God wants us to be released from? It's perfectly fine to wear, according to your culture, what is appropriate and expresses your personality. Otherwise what are we saying to the world? You've got to dress like us. You've got to come through prison security. If a lady from Africa comes in and or from India and she has much more gold uh, than kind of might be the case in in Western or British culture, it's like, well that's just a difference to be celebrated. It's not something to crack down on. Nevertheless, we're also seeing here that it's important not to misunderstand our freedom. Paul wants the Ephesians and wants us to be living in grace. But notice, he still brings instructions about modesty. Uh, He clarifies what he means by modesty with those two words, decency and propriety. What's he really getting at? He's saying this, he's not saying, here's the list, here's the rule book, here's the the church manual that you have to read. Here's the dress code for God's people. Here's what you're allowed to wear and here's what you're not allowed to wear. He's saying, look, there's, there's a fruit of the Spirit at work in us called self-control or called good judgment. That's what I think being referred to by that word propriety. It's like, by God's grace, you make a wise choice. You make a good decision. Um, it's not being imposed upon you. It's just considering how how... I'm free to wear what's appropriate to, but how, how can I be a blessing to others and not a distraction? There can be another bizarre uh, way of thinking that sometimes can creep into the church, which is almost um, going completely to the other extreme. I've sometimes, sometimes heard it expressed in this way... Well, if these men are holy, it should be perfectly fine to have the world's posters and billboards and magazines scattered around the church's meeting place, because that should be of no distraction or temptation for holy men. I think, Come on, just be realistic, that's up. Absolutely unhelpful. Uh, I think maybe sometimes guys can be unhelpful in this way as well, in the way that they hold themselves, in the way that they dress, and perhaps draw attention to themselves, which can draw attention. We just want to make sure that's not the case. It's not a rule book, but it's about making sensible choices that aren't deliberately or even unknowingly, but in all likelihood, going to just turn people's heads. We're here for God. We're here to encourage one another. We're here to fix our minds. On Jesus, and if that's what's appropriate when we gather together here, it's basically what's governing what we wear in the rest of life. So it's not a rule book, but it's about making wise choices that honour one another. And in Ephesians chapter five, we hear there shouldn't be there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality amongst us. We don't we don't even want there uh, to be a hint of it just want to be a community that's honouring one another and honouring God's transforming grace. So I think this whole matter of dress that Paul is addressing, it's a, one of these little canary issues. The point is not having a go at the canary when it starts to misbehave. I think Paul can see through the way in which people are behaving, even the way in which people are dressing, there's another issue here, and it's called the grace of God. And sometimes in the life of the church, there can be lots of little canaries. They're not big problems in, them, in themselves, but almost through them you can discern the church. We might be drifting away from grace. That could be toward, to do with wanting to draw attention to oneself. It could be to do with anger and disputing. It could be to do with passivity when it comes to prayer. It could be to do with unforgiveness and bitterness, just relationship friction. And when there are lots of these little things, we've got to take note. You know, we want to plough on. We want to keep going. We want to progress and, and advance the gospel and his kingdom. Sometimes there's a point just to stop and take stock and say, are we missing the grace of God? Do you think we're missing the grace of God? Are you aware of anything in your own life that suggests, I think I've drifted away. I've just started to think about should-dos and have-dos and must-dos, the things I feel I ought to have to do, and just basically coming back under law and forgetting that we're a people of grace. It's important that we remember. It's important that that's where we nourish our faith and, and take stock. There's tremendous, eternal, never-fading acceptance that comes from God. Are we enjoying that? Are we living in it? Let's do that. Amen.